0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. As always, I'm your host, David Frizzell, and if you're looking to build a healthy, happy, and productive team, you're in the right place. My guest in this episode is Marie Claire Ross. Marie Claire has written a brilliant book called Trusted to Thrive, how leaders create connected and accountable teams. During our chat, we talk about her powerful achievement zone model, the importance trust plays in the workplace, why it's so hard to establish, and then of course we get the good stuff. Marie Claire gives us some brilliant tips on developing and keeping trust as leaders and colleagues. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Marie Claire Ross. Murray claire Ross, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Oh, thank you, David. It's lovely to be here. Hey, Murray claire your new book, Trusted to Thrive, How Leaders Create Connected and Accountable Teams. It's a really substantial book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I have no doubt that this will sell very well. You must be really happy with how it's turned out.
0: Well, it was took quite a while to do, so it was a year to really write it and at a level that I liked. And it was a little bit frustrating because my first book took three weeks and it was really, really easy. So (laughs) this one, trust is actually a very complicated topic, so it needed a lot more time.
1: It is. It is a complicated topic and you you manage it really well through the book. Hey, we're going to finish tonight's conversation by getting your top three or four or five tips for building trust as a leader. So that's where we'll end up. But of course, As my regular listeners will know, I like to really expand on a topic and and get my guests to creep up on those last few things so that we have a lot of context and a lot of background knowledge about it. You know, The thing that struck me really early in your book was the achievement zone model. I really like its simplicity. People will know that I'm a massive fan of the old quadrant model. They're so simple, they're easy to remember, and they can be so powerful. Would you talk to us about your achievement zone model? What does it tell us? What lives in those four quadrants and what's really important in terms of lessons for us as leaders?
0: Yeah, sure. So if all of you listening, if you can imagine the, and this is trying to get my maths right, y y-axis and the x-axis. And so the the bottom axis is accountability and the the y-axis is psychological safety. And if you sort of split that up into a quadrant, what's actually really interesting, actually I'll go back a little bit. So a few years ago, Dr. Amy Edmondson, who some of you might know, she'd coined the term psychological safety, which is, of course, when we feel safe and can take risks and be, her- be ourselves. And she actually found that if you combine psychological safety with accountability, they collide to, f- to actually create High performance. And it makes a lot of sense because we have to feel safe to be able to deliver in a team that we're in. And so, achievement zone is where you have high psychological safety and high accountability. And then, underneath that is the abatement zone. So, that's where you have a team that might be high in safety, but they're low in deliverability. And abatement, actually, do you know what abatement means, David?
1: You know what I do because I read it in your book, and and I, it was I, I realised it was one of those words that I didn't have a great knowledge of until I read it in your book. And it's interesting that you would choose to use a word like that to describe one of your four quadrants because it it, it plays such an important part.
0: Yeah, well, it's. I like alliteration. So the four zones all have A's. Mm. And so I had to find an A word. So I didn't even know what abatement was. So Mm. abatement means declining in performance. And that's actually perfect because these zones are very much in their comfort zone and they don't realize that their performance is declining. And it's typically led by a leader that's had some past success with the team and everyone thinks that they're really good, they're doing a great job, but they don't realize that that very attitude is. Actually causing them to decline in performance. So they're not learning anything. Everyone feels safe to kind of just go with the flow and not do much. But it's a terrible zone for high performers because they want to achieve more, but the rest of the team kind of drags them down. Uh, To the left. Oh, so let's
1: stay with abatement there. So we're talking Mm -hmm. about the bottom right corner of the quadrant, folks, and that is high psychological safety. So psychological safety is on the horizontal axis or the Mm -hmm. x-axis and the y-axis, the up and down one is accountability. So the abatement zone is a is a team that has high psychological safety. So people feel good about being in that team. We'll talk about psychological safety a little bit in more detail later. But people feel good. They feel they trust the people around them. They feel comfortable, but they're not being held to account. That's the low part. And that's why you've given it the term abatement, because while it might feel good in the short term, because we get on well, there's a good team vibe as much as there can be when we're not doing much. People are trustworthy, people have good professional behavior, but we're not doing much. And I found it interesting in your book that you said that usually a leader in this place is, well, often is relying on past success. They're kind of resting on their laurels. They might have delivered a great project last year. But that was a while ago now, and a fair bit of water's gone under the bridge, and they've never really kind of picked back up their energy. Now, is there any chance that a leader in the abatement zone, a leader who has created an environment with high psychological safety but low accountability, is there any chance that they were just never successful, but they've always been a people person?
0: Ah, that's a really interesting question. And usually they have had some past success. But it might be because they're being held to account by their leader. Mm, And mm. so when that goes and they're not being held to account, then everything starts to slip. And it's really interesting because there is safety, but there isn't safety. So while it might seem high and everyone feels, I I think really in some ways people feel safe to not deliver.
1: Mm. Because if you actually...
0: Yeah, because if if I'm a a nice
1: guy, I'll get get along pretty well in this team.
0: Exactly. And if you actually want to perform, it's a really painful place to be because no one else in that team wants you to do better than them because it means that it's going to show up that they're not really working that hard. You know, it's really a team that just works nine to five, Mm -hmm. does the bare minimum, and then escalates conflict or issues to their boss to fix. So the boss actually ends up working much harder than they need to because their team members just aren't really working at the standard that they should.
1: And it's called the abatement zone, so I'm getting the sense that from your research and the the teams that you've worked with, that Mm -hmm. decline is inevitable in this place. There will be a decline at some point, because at some point they'll fail to deliver, they'll be uncovered, their leader will be uncovered for someone who doesn't hold anyone to account, and things will start to decline. They'll miss a deadline at some point, let another part of the business down or a customer down, and and down things go, and things can slide pretty pretty quickly when you get into that position. And, and we all know that even the most harmonious team, once things start to get ugly, people can turn pretty internal and start looking after themselves pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, correct. And it's really interesting you should talk about that because in my research, I found that that team at its full potential, it will reach 80% of what it can achieve, but it will start to decline down to 50% actually even less than the apathy zone, which is the, the next zone to the left, which is where you have low psychological safety and low accountability. So it's it's pretty much the worst zone you can be in. We, we drop into this zone when we're ready to leave an organization or we want to quit a team. But I, I often find that in this team, you can get a leader who just isn't a people person. So they're not really wanting to lead their team or they have all these other exciting projects that they keep preferring to work on than lead their people. So their team feel very much on their own, that they can't rely on their boss to be there. And because it's not safe, people don't really want to put their full commitment into what they're doing. So they're just really doing the bare minimum. And that team is often operating at about 50 to 70% of what it can. But as I mentioned- A team in the
1: apathy zone.
0: Sorry, that, that can 50 to 60%.
1: In the apathy zone. Wow, that's really amazing. So the apathy zone is the bottom left of the quadrant. That's low accountability, low psychological safety. Nothing is going well in this team. And, and is this always a team on the decline? Is it ever a team on the up? Or is it ever a team that's just sitting there stagnant and will stay there for a while? What's the story with this team? What's its journey?
0: Yeah, well, typically it's stagnant. And I find that the only way to fix these teams is to get rid of the team leader. Mm. and usually uh, this is where you'll find high-performing leaders are brought in to fix that team and they have to really start at the bottom with all those individuals to get them up to standard
1: so what does it so someone who's coming into the apathy zone a new leader is coming in and and that the brief they get from their boss is hey look we need you to come into this team and fix them they don't deliver they don't trust each other there's a lot of backstabbing, they don't share information, all of those classic things that happen when mm. teams aren't going well. What does the team leaders start with? What would you start with if you walked into that scenario?
0: Yeah, well, interestingly, because the team is so dysfunctional, you actually have to start with each individual. So it's very much about one-on-ones that are more about building up people's confidence because they're, they're in a, in a bad place and they haven't been looked after. And it's really about building that connection. It's a little bit like you could almost consider it as being like, you know, when you, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of adopting a stray animal. I have not. Uh, They need a lot of work and emotional support. So you've got to do that with each individual, make them feel good about themselves, give them small tasks that they can actually get some little wins And then slowly, slowly start connecting them to not just people in their team so much, but even other performers across the business that can mentor them so that they can see another way of operating.
1: That's really great Uh, advice, Marie Claire. I love the idea of starting with a a team that is is dysfunctional in both ways, that you start with the individual because you can't just expect people to start forming a, a really healthy team environment by patting them on the back and giving them some encouragement. Each of those individuals who are making up that dysfunctional team have probably lost confidence in their own ability, their own ability to deliver, to interact positively and and collaborate meaningfully. So working on them as individuals is obviously the place to start so they can build up their own confidence. And as you say, once you start to see that confidence build after they've had some individual wins, now it's time to connect them and get them working together on you know, maybe just a few of them in the team to practice that collaboration again. Fantastic advice. Now the last zone, we've started with the achievement zone, which is high accountability and high psychological safety. That's in the top right of the quadrant if you're playing along. Then we've dropped down to the the bottom right, which is high psychological safety. So everyone feels great, but low accountability, that's the abatement zone. And of course abatement means going backwards, getting worse. And bottom left, which is low in both accountability and psychological safety, is the apathy zone. That's where nothing is going great. And Marie Claire's advice there is, I'm sorry, Marie Claire's advice there is to work on people one on one. You've got to get rid of the leader. Whoever's led them down that dark alley needs to go. And then you need, the new leader will need to work with people one on one to get their confidence back before they start connecting within their team again. And what about the last quadrant, the anxiety zone? I bet no one listening has ever been there before. High (laughs) accountability where you're expected to deliver, 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 but no psychological safety. Describe that type of environment to us.
0: Yeah, so this is a really high-pressure environment. And before COVID, I saw this a lot in, of course, high-pressure industries, so IT, legal industry, health as well. In COVID, a lot of teams fell into this zone. So there are a couple of different variants of it. So the main one is where people are just seen as um, tools of productivity, let's just say, just get work machine. done. And the boss doesn't really care about them as a human being. You know, don't get sick, just keep working. And, and people have worked really, really hard. And of course, the fallout is that people really struggle with stress and burnout but some, it's really interesting. In some research I did with companies, I actually found that some teams are in this zone because they've always been in this zone. And even with new management and a new leadership, they still feel that they have to be in this constant state of high pressure that they put themselves under.
1: Almost which like they is don't, they don't realize that a place can exist where you feel good about the people you work mm-hmm. with and even the people you re- report to. And you can still be held accountable at the same time while you feel good. It's kind of like people who spend too much time in the anxiety zone can forget how good a workplace can be.
0: Yeah, and that's that's actually quite correct. It's it's almost like it's become such an ingrained habit. And these, what I love about this team is that they're so determined to do the right thing. So well, they they're deliver. really committed. They yeah, deliver at
1: their own personal cost. They do. I've seen some teams really like well. this where people deliver mm-hmm. at their own personal cost, and it. So, you know, they get into this place where it doesn't matter how badly they're treated, they continue to deliver as if they think that maybe if I just deliver one more thing, I'll start to be treated well. My boss will start to respect me. But of course, it doesn't happen because if they've set it up that way in the first place, then it's not going to get any better by you just continuing to deliver. So what do you do, Marie Claire, as an outside consultant coming in and you observe this? You observe a workplace which is toxic with the type of behavior that you've described, where people are expected to deliver, they're expected to be on call 24-7, they're expected to pivot on the spot multiple times a day, they're held you know, accountable to with an inch of their life, but they're given nothing in the way of psychological safety. What is your first move as a consultant?
0: I actually work with the leadership team because that's where the issues are actually at. And that's, you know, it can be quite a lot of work with the team and sometimes it even has to mean coaching with individual leaders that are just working everyone really hard. And to be fair, like so many people that You know, as human beings, we're really hard on ourselves, a lot of people, particularly high performers, and unfortunately, because we're hard on ourselves, we're also hard on everyone else, but we don't realise we're doing that. Whether it's a half-day energiser session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organisation.
1: So you say you start working with the leadership team and you start by getting them to examine themselves and, and how they feel about themselves. Because if they're really hard on themselves, maybe they're going to be hard on the people around them. And I also read in your book, a really nice piece about people who don't trust themselves are likely, unlikely to trust the people around them as well.
0: Yeah. And it really taps into, there's quite a bit in the book about self-awareness. And one of the things I found really interesting that I've got in the book, and it was a study done by Dr. Tasha Urich, who wrote the book Insight. And she actually found that only 10 to 15% of leaders are actually self-aware, which is really, really quite crappy. Yeah, it's <laughs>
1: incredible. It?
0: And it, it's really, yeah. And it's really interesting that, unfortunately, a lot of leaders don't even realise that they're working people really hard. And you know, a lot of it comes from our childhood and how we were treated and all that sort of stuff, which you know, people need to unpack.
1: So, implied Not- very strongly in the title of your book and and the way you write about trust so carefully and in such detail, trust is important across all four of these quadrants the absence of it and the building of it and the presence of it in the achievement zone for example and i'm going to ask you in a minute to describe the role of trust across these four quadrants but before you do that can you tell us what we generally mean when we talk about trust in the workplace
0: so this is interesting i actually find that the word trust is misused and if anything i kind of when i hear people talking about trust i kind of feel a little bit icky
1: <laughs> uh, which sounds quite right
0: yeah and because it's really trust is very much our own individual perspective so it it varies per person and it all depends on our life experiences and you know as human beings we're actually not designed to look within ourselves we're actually mm-hmm. designed to look externally to see that we're safe mm. So how we trust is very different for each person. So unfortunately, when it comes to trust, we assume people trust the same way we do. And that's what causes all the issues. And in fact, I really do think men and women trust very differently. I don't have any research to back it up, so I can't really say that with much depth. But when I do work with trust in an organisation, I like to define it so that everyone has the same definition Because it's really interesting, like when I go off and I might talk at a conference or do a workshop, people will want to start to get my insights on trust in politics or the government. I don't care. Like, that's not what I'm about. Like, (laughs) that's just so much more research that I have to unpack and understand. Like, I'm just into trust in the workplace with employees. I don't even really extend it out towards customers so much. But how I like to define trust in a workplace is that it's when people can confidently rely on and predict what others are going to do because that's really what trust is about. It's making sure that we can trust our peers to deliver and that you know we know what's going on and that people will be there for us.
1: So you, you made the interesting point before that people trust in different ways and we all have this kind of inherent false impression that everyone around us trusts in the same way that we do and if trust is people being confident on in relying on and predicting what others around them do how can we trust differently how can you and i trust differently if that's the definition
0: yeah and i should have just said that the end bit to that definition was and that you know they're not going to come to any harm so we trust differently One of the things that I talk about in the book is that trust is actually processed differently in the brain and it's an emotion, so it's processed in our limbic brain. And the real kicker is that part of the brain has no capacity for language, so we can't actually explain in words why we trust someone, which is part of the issue. The only way we trust people is based on how they make us feel. So you can't actually talk your way into trust. You have to behave your way into it. Now, I don't know about you, David, but I know that if I've just met someone and they tell me to trust them on something, I feel a bit icky.
1: Totally do. I know what you mean.
0: You get that feeling in your stomach. Mm. Tradesmen in particular seem to do do it all the time (laughs) when it comes to giving you extra services and they want to charge you lots for it. But this is, the issue uh, but we think it's all about you know you just talk a lot and people will trust you or just tell people to trust you or even ask someone to trust you but all that is kind of working against our brain and really trust is is really about you know consistency of behavior so saying what we we said we would do because that's what people are looking out for and you'll often see in employee engagement survey results that employees complain about their leaders not walking the talk Because that's what they're doing subconsciously to trust that their leader can be trustworthy, that they're doing what they say they're going to do.
1: Hey, I always remember this quote from Patrick Lencioni, who said, the best way to establish trust is to be trustworthy. And that's always resonated because it's a blinding glimpse of the obvious, as some would say, but if for some reason, it's quite a powerful idea. We can make trust in our minds to be this great, big, complicated thing within a team and an organization, and it's very important, and it carries a lot of weight for how successful we'll be as a team. But really, the, the idea of developing trust and the role I can play in developing trust, all I can do to develop trust with the people around me is to be trustworthy, and that kind of fits with your definition. So if I in, act in a trustworthy way then people can confidently rely and predict on how I'll behave.
0: Yeah, well it's so true and I, and what I often find that leaders they'll get upset when they get a 360 degree interview that shows that other people in their peers don't trust them or their direct reports don't trust them and they'll be all confused but they don't realize that their team's not delivering and other teams can't rely on them to actually deliver on time. But they get trust and being liked confused. So, you know, we, we're all so different in how we mm. trust and how we perceive other people trust us as well. But we don't realise it's contextual because, you know, we might be good in one area and quite trustworthy, but in others, we're not. I actually think it's quite hard for human beings for us to be fully trustworthy in every single area. Like, I know I'm
1: not. And, you know, the equation here is really complicated because we're trying to establish trust with each other. We're we're all trying to be trustworthy. But there's always this thing at play. You know that idea that if someone sort of pushes in in traffic, they sort of cut in front of you or they're changing lanes or they zip up a lane that they know is about to end and then they cut in front of you and we're all sitting in a traffic jam and, and it's all very frustrating and I'm late for a meeting. If someone does that to me... I will look at that person and think, I hate you. You're a terrible person. I bet you're an awful mother, husband, father, brother. I just bet you're a terrible person because you've just cut in front of me. But of course, if I'm to cut in front of someone when I'm driving, and it happens, I I hate to admit – I put it down to the situation. I think, oh, yeah, but I'm just running really late. Or, oh, I missed that turn. I forgot that this, this lane ends. So just I'm just going to push in here. Please just let me push in here. I'm not a bad guy. It's just the situation I'm in. And there's a word for that. It's called the fundamental attribution error. And a guest that I had on the podcast told me about it a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. And that is that for ourselves, we cut ourselves a break. And we put behavior down to the situation we're in, not to my personality traits, my deep core personality. I think, no, oh, no, I'm just cutting in today because I'm running a bit late. But if I see someone else do it, I overemphasize the role of character and underemphasize the role of their situation it wouldn't be natural or or reflex for me to go oh that's okay buddy you come in you're probably just running late this morning you've probably got a meeting you've got to get to i'm much more likely to think oh you're a terrible person i hate you you're awful or something awful like that in my mind and of course that's an exaggeration but that's the fundamental attribution error and that's a play in the workplace when we see someone else do something that we think looks untrustworthy, we might judge their character really harshly on that. But if we're to do something that might we we know might appear to be a bit untrustworthy to the people around us, we just put it down to the situation. I'm sorry, folks. I didn't get that reporting because I've got this family thing. I've just got to get to it. What do you think about that, the fundamental attribution error and the role it plays in developing trust in the workplace?
0: Well, it's a huge impediment. and. If anything, one of the reasons I wrote my book were to give tools for leaders, for them to be focusing on, to kind of minimise that. You know, one of the things I do talk about is our fear of interpersonal risk. You know, we are driven subconsciously by this fear that it's, um, other people are going to hurt us. And so we do have that, that little voice in our head that's quite critical of other people. And we really have to work hard against it so what I've been practicing for years is when someone cuts me off in traffic I just say oh they must be very busy in a a hurry and I always let their situation some weight I let them in because they're obviously in more of a hurry than I am but Mm. I get really frustrated with my husband because he'll try and block them Mm. and not let them in (laughs) but it's just creating frustration for everyone so it's, you know, at its core, and this is going to sound corny, but this is why you'll see in my book there's lots of love hearts in the book because it's really about loving ourselves and, and other people. And and I know that sounds a little bit far-fetched, but we've got to be kinder to ourselves and then other people around us because, you know, we've got to have more compassion into what's going on in people's lives. And I, I think that's actually been the gift of covid is that we've started to care more about others. And you, you've seen the workplace caring more about people because everyone's demanding it because we're, we've all gone through so much.
1: All right, Marie-Claire, you've done a fantastic job of describing for us the achievement zone model. I love it. I love a good simple quadrant model. I'll remember that. And by the way, it reminds me a fair bit of the Blake Moulton managerial model which is another quadrant quadrant model is fantastic i'll remember that i'll even share it with people along the way you've talked to us about the importance of trust and and what really means to trust in the workplace and some of the barriers to developing that you've also talked about some of the the false assumptions that leaders make about developing trust in the workplace so can you finish by giving us your top 3 or 4 or 5 tips on how we can go about developing trust in the workplace as leaders?
0: Yeah, well, the first one is really about building that self-awareness. And when it comes to self-awareness, there's lots of different ways that you can do it. But I'll give a few little kind of ideas, you know, journaling, asking people for feedback, which is really, really difficult. But I tell you what, if there's one issue I find most leaders don't do is that they don't ask for feedback and if they do it's not right or if they're given it they get upset and that causes all sorts of issues so you want to make sure that you get that for any of you who are new to your new to being a leader get feedback as much as you can because that will stop you from being derailed in your career and it also really strengthens that leadership muscle and self-awareness muscle I should say And then in terms of the other tips, and this really goes into the central model that I talk about in the book, which is the integrated trust building system. So I'm sorry, David, it's not quite three tips, it's more four. So there's a bonus one. (laughs) But, you know, when it comes to building trust, it's it's based on neuroscience. It is creating psychological safety. So, you know, there's lots of different ways you can do that. But the, the main tip I would say, and this feeds into the feedback piece, is just creating an environment where people know it's safe to learn. So there's always continuous improvement and debriefs, and people know that when they're together in the team that they're going to learn something, or when you have one-on-ones, and you do that through asking insightful questions of people. And then the second one is creating connection, which it sounds like it's just about Creating that sense of belonging and connecting people together. And that is one part of it. But what I find is that a lot of leaders cause trust issues because they're not working that well with other leaders. And it's mainly because they don't understand other departments. It's not that interesting. Your team members are going to be the same. So it's really important to always be connecting your team members to the work that they're doing, the meaning behind it, and how it helps other people. And then lastly, it's really about connecting people to a bright future. With the research that I do in companies, you know, a lot of employees will complain if the leader isn't talking about the vision. People actually need that. They need to feel that the hard work is worth it and they're actually working towards something exciting. So it's very important to be able to refer to that and make it compelling and interesting for people.
1: Fantastic, Marie Claire. Number one was build self-awareness, and that's a monumental task, but there are ways to do it. You suggested some journaling. You suggested talking to people, being really honest and say, hey, I'm on a bit of a journey of discovery here. I want to know these things, and you can help me by being frank with me about the way I come across. Because building self-awareness is a really tough thing to do. Number two, creating psychological safety by creating an environment where people know it's safe to learn. That's a really important one. And you're so right, because not only is learning a really fantastic and positive outcome, what's inherent in that statement, it's okay not to know something at the beginning of the learning process. So that's great. We embrace that here. If you don't know that, if you haven't had experience in that, then this is a great time to learn. So it's not just about the development that comes with the learning. It's about being safe in the environment. That's okay not to know everything. And we've all been environments where it doesn't feel that way. Number three was creating a connection between team members, the work, and the people who are behind that work. And number four was connecting people to a bright future. Because, of course, one of the things that people need from their leader is hope hope that what we're doing here is leading to something, hope that this thing that we're doing, this team, this organization, I'm going to be part of that. There is a future for me here. And the future is aligned with my own personal goals because you as a leader have connected with me and you know what I'm about. They're fantastic. Marie Claire, I really appreciate your insight. I love your book. I think it is a really substantial book. You've done such a great job. And thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast.
0: Oh, thank you so much. It's really lovely to hear you say that. And it's been really fun. Thank you so much for interviewing me today
1: and that was marie claire ross she speaks with such passion and knowledge about trust and the role it plays in leadership and teams and those tips for building trust again number one be self-aware number two Create psychological safety, an environment where people know it's safe to learn. Number three, create connection to team members, to the work, and the people behind the work. And number four, connect people to a bright future. They have to be able to see the vision. As always, I'll share these and the other lessons I took from my conversation with Marie Claire on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it, along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts, on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.